Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 110 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Before I start talking about this episode, which we're going to talk about faking orgasms, I wanted to let you guys know that currently we have a promotion going on in our practice. We have a couple of evening and weekend appointments that we can offer for reduced fee. Give us a call at 310-600-9912 or you can email us. As you know, I recently hired two great therapists uh, with different areas of specialties. And I know I interviewed Shannon last week. I'm going to talk about sexual assault and trauma. And if you're thinking about getting therapy, this is a great opportunity to come and check it out and get it at a reduced fee. This is only for this month and it's going to be expire after this month. So if you're interested to start therapy, this is a good time to look into it. Today, we're going to talk about faking orgasm. This is something that I hear a lot from my clients that they feel kind of embarrassed. They've been faking orgasms in their relationship. Part of it's come from them not knowing their body. And the other part is about disappointing their partners. Our guest today is Dr. Janet Brito. We're going to talk about what are some of the solutions that you can implement today to stop faking orgasm and get more in touch with your erotic self. Dr. Janet Brito is an ASAC certified sex therapist who also has a license in clinical psychology and social work. She's a graduate of Pacifica Graduate Institute and completed her postdoctoral fellowship from the University of Minnesota Medical School, one of only a few university programs in the world dedicated to sexual training. She has published many, many different articles in various social media and also journal, uh, various peer-reviewed journals. So I leave a link to her website and Instagram in the show notes. So if you guys are interested to learn more about her practice, which is in Honolulu in Hawaii and called Center for Sexual Reproductive Health, please go ahead and check out her personal webpage and social media. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Janet Brito. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am honored and excited to have Dr. Janet Brito back on our show. Dr. Janet, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be back. Our listeners love the episode that we talked about holistic approach through sexual health. And I think they, I got several email people wanted to have you back. And we're going to talk about something that I feel it's very common and people feeling frustrated. And I think I thought it would be a great topic to bring up. So we're going to talk about faking orgasm. So I'm kind of curious, how common is it for people to fake orgasm? It's fairly common. According to some research studies, it seems to be more of a problem for heterosexual women. Straight men and gay men tend to orgasm a lot more. The averages range, some of them from 87 to 95 percent. 
Fortunately, though, for lesbian women, they are actually orgasming at about 86% of the time. So I think we have something to learn from that population, right, as far as what they're doing right. Absolutely. Very interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, they, which, 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 when I was doing some research on this, it seems like most of the research is focused on heterosexual, more heterosexual relationships. But when they did further studies on gender, they, they broke it down to lesbians, bisexuals, gay men, you know, straight men. And they found out lesbian women tend to be orgasming at a higher rate. And so I really want to, I'm excited to talk about what they're doing that other people could learn from as well. Yes, yes. I'm very curious to see what you found in your research and like when you were kind of looking at this article. So, but I guess the other thought that I have is I know sometimes, as you said, I hear it in the heterosexual population and I, I have the husbands and boyfriends and partners are telling me they're getting confused about why their partner fake orgasm. So can you tell us about some of the reasons that might someone kind of motivate someone to fake orgasm? Yeah, I think there's, well, there's definitely a lot of social cultural components to that. I think it might have to do with the stigma against female sexual pleasure and a lot of the narratives that we've received about what it means to have an orgasm. I think men that they're more uh, accustomed or um, they're, there's the script is they're allowed to and you, they deserve to have this. I think for women, what I find, they feel either bad or guilty or uh, embarrassed or they don't feel comfortable being assertive about letting their partners know what feels good to them or they may not even know what feels good to them because there's some taboo against exploring their bodies and self-pleasuring, which I think can be really useful for someone to get to know their bodies. So there's definitely some social culture components. I think there's some other, uh, there's been some other hypotheses around evolutionary theories that, you know, there's nothing, um, it's not for reproduction purposes. It's more, there's really no use for it. Oh no. Uh, for, for men, it's like, well, they have an orgasm, they're, they're able to reproduce. So there's something about, you know, spreading their genes. So I, I mean, definitely, I don't, I have, I don't really hear my clients talk in that way. I think they talk more about feeling bad or guilty about speaking up for their needs. Absolutely. That seems to be more of a common theme. Right. And I think part of it is poor sex education. I know that <laughs> sometimes women are watching porn and there's nothing wrong with watching porn, but I guess they get majority of their sex education from porn and thinking, oh my God, the other women, they kind of have this kind of distorted way of thinking that other women are reaching orgasm two minutes after penetration. What's wrong with me that I cannot reach orgasm? Exactly. And I think that's another reason that the focus tends to be more on orgasm is achieved through penile vaginal intercourse. Mm. And I think that that's a myth and it tends to hurt couples, heterosexual couples, predominantly as to we're, we're having intercourse and we're not having an orgasm. And in, in there, there's some lack of education, I think, as far as clitoral stimulation. Majority of women require some clitoral stimulation to achieve orgasm. So there's some physiological component between the size and fit of this couple. They may not be able to have that the clitoris may, may not be stimulated enough in order for there to be an orgasm through penile vaginal intercourse. So I think sometimes the focus is too uh, 
based on performance. And uh, I, I mean, I just asked a, a client of the day and, and, and the focus seemed to be on like, I'm like, well, we, they got together. There was a little bit of hugging, a little bit of kissing, and then we went straight to intercourse. And I was like, well, I was wondering what about the, the foreplay or is there some... Mm. Is is your clitoris getting stimulated? And not really. It's more about uh, there was some joy in pleasing her partner and wanting to do everything for them instead of focusing more on her pleasure and feeling some sort of like I'm taking too much space or I'm a little bit too much or right. I, I take too long and I'm feeling bad about that. So I'm just going to focus on my partner and their needs. And there's nothing wrong with this, by the way, if that's something that women feel pleasure from and they want to do this for their partner and this feels good to them, hey, by all means. But if it's something that's causing them distress and they're feeling bad and defective in a way, then I think it's worth exploring on what is going on. Do we need more sex education on how our bodies work together? And do you know about my body as much as I know about yours? Right. Absolutely. And I think one of the shocking things I hear often when I kind of talk to my clients about sex and when they're talking about issues with orgasm is that most of the time people don't know how long it takes for both partners sometimes to get turned on because I I, I definitely see it in uh, male as well that they have performance anxiety issues and they're talking about oh my god I cannot uh have sex kind of like an and first like I don't know five minutes of us kind of wanting to have sex and sometimes we both need more more stimulation more foreplay and I think that's essential for people to know absolutely and one of the things that has been really useful is introducing mindful sex which I, I, I know you've talked about in, in one of your shows. And it's about that mind shift from this pleasure, from performance-based sexuality to more of a pleasure base. So it's really about getting to know your own body and exploring different sensations and what it means for you to achieve an orgasm. So it's kind of slowing things down. This is not about performance. It's not about a goal. It's more about non-demanding, really being within your body, sharing this experience. And when you let go of that pressure, then it's more likely for you to be able to relax in your body to have an orgasm. Right. And I think the other issue related to women experiencing orgasm is kind of related to what Jesse said about most people have this expectation that uh, the only way for me to reach orgasm is through the vaginal penetration. And mm-hmm. if there's any kind of touching or a clitoris, a clitoris stimulation, clitoral stimulation, there's something wrong with me. But as you said, most people need that. And I think there's no right way of doing sex. Exactly. There is no right or wrong way of doing sex. It's more about knowing your body and gaining some more confidence or, or permission to own that about yourself, what, what brings you pleasure, and then taking that risk to letting your partner know. Now, of course, there's, you know, you you have to feel safe, I think, to communicate that to your partner that that's what you need. Emotionally safe. Absolutely. And I think you, you're right that many times we do things for our partner. What kind of we focus on our partner's pleasure, at least many women that I see in my practice, versus kind of focusing on what I need and what I want to, what brings me pleasure. And I think that that's really important for people to know. Exactly. I think that's the biggest thing. And so part of the work is also working with, um, if it's it's women, which I think heterosexual women, it's about owning that script and creating a new narrative. One where, oh, I actually, it's, it's okay for me to give myself permission to experience this type of pleasure and to ask my partner 
to touch me in this way because I know this is what works for me. Right. And I think there are subset of women that they don't have awareness about uh, what orgasm like or they don't know what brings them pleasure. And you were talking about self-stimulation, masturbation. I know many people have hesitation to do that because of taboo of the culture and religion and all of those struggles that they kind of uh, learned early on in life. Do you prescribe people at times to kind of engage in this behavior to improve their sexual health? Yes, and with caution. I think mm-hmm. it depends on the client. Um, some clients are going to be more to accept that recommendation and other clients are, are going to squirm and say, I'm not going to do that. That feels very uncomfortable for me. And so I meet my clients where they're at. And in that situation, what I would recommend is more of a positive handwriting. So how about if you guide your partner and what feels good to you? So you're, what about if you both do this together? So you're showing your, your positive handwriting as a technique that typically used in sensate focus exercises. So it's, you are guiding your partner's hand and how you want to be touched. So you could, you, you're doing this together and you're leading them. You're, you're guiding them on what touch feels good to you. So that's another way of kind of slowing things down, exploring further, non-demand touching, really focusing on more sensation, awareness, and pleasure. So some clients are not, they, they, they are not going to be comfortable self-pleasuring and that's okay. I'm like, that's, that's okay. I provide education on how common that is, how helpful it might be. But if they're if they're not if they don't want to do that, then it's not it can't be forced. Right, of course. And I like that you have uh, this other way of approaching it that they still kind of like examining, pleasuring their body, and also communicating that to their partner. And and I love that the many of my clients find this exercise kind of very erotic when you're kind of. Like your partner is stimulating you or you're going to stimulate yourself in front of the partner. So it can be part of this kind of erotic play. (laughs) Absolutely. And it could be bonding. It could be an adventure. It could be something novel. So there's other benefits that come as well with doing that type of approach. And, you know, there's as, as we were talking about, there's a group of women that they they are able to reach orgasm with some education and with some kind of more foreplay. But there are another group that we talk about in psychology and sex therapy that they struggle with female orgasmic disorder. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, female orgasmic disorder is a type of sexual dysfunction that is when a woman has difficulty having an orgasm or they may never have an orgasm or they might have a a different intensity as far as orgasmic sensation. So they are reporting some type of distress. They feel like um, uncomfortable with this. It could be something lifelong. It could be acquired. It could be all the time. It could be situational. So it really depends on, uh, it's really important to listen to the person's sexual story to really get an understanding of how how it's negatively impacting their life. And I guess for the situational ones, how long would you say like a partner, a person needs to go without having inability to reach orgasm to kind of qualify for the situational one? According to the DSM-5, they make the recommendation of at le- for at least six months. You've been experiencing this difficulty for at least six months. And that's how they determine whether this qualifies under a 
disorder. Right. And again, I, I, I always kind of emphasize that because I feel sometimes <laughs> people feel, oh my God, I haven't been able to reach orgasm in past couple of weeks or sometimes broken. They're kind of panicking. Right. Right. So it's it's helpful to know that like that even in the situational ones, it's it's a six month that people are having sex and they're not able to reach orgasm. And you know, for many women, at least my clients, my friends, and even colleagues, because you know, when you're sex therapist, you always hear about this <laughs> from everyone. Uh, so we right. talk about how orgasms at times are so inconsistent and unreliable. Why do you think this is the pattern that many women experience? I think that this could, well, there's multiple factors, right? Are the stars aligned? Did I sleep well? How is my stress level today? Did I feel loved? Do I have enough adventure in my life? There is definitely a mind-body connection. It's not going to be one size fits all. So it really depends on, it, it really depends and, and multiple life factors and whether you're going to be able to relax and feel comfortable to experiment, to want to have partner sex in order to let go enough to have an orgasm. And the way I explain it to my clients is that orgasm is your responsibility. It's not your partner. They, they don't have magic. You have the magic. So you know what what works for you. And it's about giving yourself permission to let go into that sensation because it can be a little frightening for for people. I think sometimes if you're not accustomed to, because people think it's selfish or you're like just being so, you know, um, uh, I don't know, egocentric and you're just thinking about yourself. And for women, I think that's hard, right? It's like, you don't want to be Oh my God, God forbid you're selfish. You have to always be thinking about somebody else, right? right? It's like, this is not about me. This is about my partner. It's a duty. I need to do this for them. And it's like, no, well, not really. This could be a partner thing. You both can experience pleasure. Right. As much as your partner does, you can, you can too. And I love the, your emphasis on letting go because I think there is a component of letting go. And I feel like when for women that are, are preoccupied with something, oh my God, if my tie looks right right now, if I have like, you know, if, if I'm bloated, like I have lots of clients that are kind of like preoccupied with their other thoughts, distracting thoughts about like their body shape, their self-image, that can be an issue as well. That's It, it makes it hard for them to kind of go through the process and enjoy sex and let go, as you mentioned. Absolutely. I, this is a mind shift, right? There, this is difficult. So part of self-care is, you know, it's beyond the green smoothies, right? It's beyond <laughs> like yoga. It's about setting limits. It's about understanding your body. It's about being assertive about that. You know, and, and there's cultural factors that come into play. So you have to be really careful on who you're saying these things to. Really, it's important to really hear from your client on what, what, what might work for them based on their culture, based on their background, based on their religion. So it's really just taking it easy, calm, you know, non-pressuring, just really being curious. Tell me more on, on what gets in the way for you. And so then just providing education and letting them take it at their own pace. Not, not pressuring them as well. And I love your emphasis on cultural factors and cultural elements, because I know even for uh, some, some of, again, I, I work with conservative communities as well. And for some of them, they always kind of connect that this woman who's sexual and this is like enjoying sex 
as promiscuous or someone's mm-hmm. like a bad girl and it's hard for them to connect with that part of themselves. Absolutely. I mean, it's very, it's very negative, right? Female pleasure. Nobody wants to be seen in that way. So if you're, that's the main script that you were given or your partner thinks about you in that way, it's going to be difficult to introduce a new concept of actually this is part of human life. It's part about being a sexual being. It's giving, giving that permission that it's, it's okay. And now again, there's some religious religions that may not may not have those constructs. So I think it's just important to be to be aware and mindful of your client. Absolutely, yes, yes. Again, it's kind of a although these are the broad recommendations. Every person is different. Every condition is different. So it's important to be kind of like a tailor your treatments and approach to that specific person. Exactly. Yes. Absolutely. And I think the other thing you can I, I as as our listeners know, I grew up in Iran and Iranian American and it's it's interesting that so like in order to discourage people from having premarital sex, there's just tons of sex negative uh messages like in growing up these like horrible like horror stories that the women who like I was hearing from like religious studies and stuff that people women who had sex this happened to them was kind of negative things and then Mm. as soon as you get married the expectation is you would start having sex because in in Islam at least I know it's encouraged for women and or like husband and wife to have sex frequently and it's kind Mm. of bonding and stuff and I find the discrepancies very interesting (laughs) because that's not how it works (laughs) <laughs> if we are having developing this negative narrative around sexuality, signing a paper <laughs> will not change that. <laughs> so that's what Absolutely. I see a lot. Yeah, it's it's almost like I think of it as a light switch. It's like it's supposed to go on now, right? That you're married, you're together. It's like, okay, now you can. But it's it the messaging has already been shared. So right. it's 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 difficult to turn it off and now become a sexual person and in your marriage. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it takes a con- uh, kind of conscious effort to change these narratives. But I guess if some of our listeners, they might kind of fake the orgasm in past regularly, or they have been faking the orgasm, they don't know what to do to change it. What are some of the recommendations that you have for these women that they want to stop faking orgasm and they're interested to explore their erotic body-mind connection? Yeah, absolutely. What I have found really interesting was this study that's not told, 2017, and it was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, the one that found that lesbian women actually orgasm 86% of the time. And what they found was that the reason that they're orgasming more often than heterosexual women is that they tend to receive more oral sex. So there's more of this clitoral stimulation that's occurring. They tend to have sex longer. There tends to be more time spent with, you know, exploring sensation versus kind of a quick penile vaginal penetration experience. They tend to be more satisfied in their relationship. They tend to feel more connected and, you know, have a a stronger bond. They tend to be more comfortable being sexually assertive and asking for what they want and what they need. And I think that's extremely important, but also very frightening when you're not encouraged or you haven't grown up to speak and share your voice. It can be very scary to finally say, 
actually what I really like is this, or what I really need is this. So that that is uh, something to continue to work on and asking for what you want. And they also tend to report that they they do they feel comfortable praising their partner. So they tend to um, in, encourage like giving almost like this positive feedback. Like I really enjoyed when you touched me in this way or when you helped me this way. So there's a lot more sexual communication which is extremely important when I'm teaching my, my clients, either individuals or couples. It's not just it's anatomy and physio, you know, phys- physiological education, but also this sexual communication. I, I really would like to hold you in this way. Do you give me permission? I really want to give you a blowjob. I really want to have intercourse with you. I really want to you know, do mutual masturbation. Are you interested? So it's this sexual communication and then praising each other for that. Like, thank you. Yes, I love that. Or you did an amazing job at that. So it's that positive reinforcement. Some other little things that I think are worth mentioning. They also report that they, along with the sexual communication, they throughout the day, so outside the bedroom, there is the sexual communication. They're calling, they're texting, they're emailing each other, something sexual, which is not just, hey, are you going to pick up the kids or did you take out the trash or did you pay that <laughs> bill, right? This is more like, that's like very business, you know, relationships, which is important. But as far as increasing erotic connection, it's like, hey, actually, I'm thinking about you, sweetheart, or however you say it to your partner. And you being willing and taking risks to share some of that sexual communication. Lastly, a few more things. They are more likely to do sexy talk. So during the relation, during the interaction, you know, sexy talk, dirty talk, wear sexy lingerie, and they try different things, like different positions. So it's not just the, okay, hey, we're going to, you know, kiss for a minute and now we're going to do missionary and I'm going to ejaculate and have an orgasm, and then I'm going to go to sleep, <laughs> right? Which is what I hear. And I'm like, wait, 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 but what happened before? <laughs> well, that that's sort of how it happened. So there's there seems to be more adventure and, and trying out more um, fantasies, and there's more risk-taking, <laughs> it seems. So I think we could really learn a lot from lesbians on sexual and straight women can learn a lot from this study. These are these are things I would recommend as a sex therapist to anyone, even couples who are, you know, reporting they're having satisfying sexual relationship. These are really nice ideas. Right. And I, I and I love that that you shared all of this great finding with us. And again, many of these things, even like at implementing two of this, I can see that it can change, like transform people's sexual life. Because I think as you said, that's right. People kind of have, and we all are guilty of that. Like we have our like routine day-to-day lives that we have to attend to and do things. But most people, they don't think about kind of foreplay starts from the morning before you want to have sex. Exactly. Yes. That's that. Could you imagine? It's like this long tease or something. I mean, right. how erotic is that? And the connection is continuing to be nurtured throughout the day. It's not just until the moment you're in the bedroom. Right. And I think the other thing that you mentioned that was wonderful is kind of like the satisfaction in the relationship and its connection Mm -hmm. with our sexuality. Because I see sometimes, at least in my heterosexual couples that I see in my practice, that, you know, women say, like, I don't know how he can have sex when we have argument. I think sometimes men are better at compartmentalizing and kind of like 
kind of separating their arguments from sex. But I think many women, when they're upset, they're not able to connect sexually with their partners. Absolutely. I think that there's something about the emotional connection and feeling like they're being heard, that their needs are getting met outside the bedroom that definitely can help with being able to relax and let go and just sort of have some fun. You know, I, I can't have fun if, you know, we had this argument, you know, this evening and we haven't resolved it. So definitely there, I think that the communication outside the bedroom is as, is as essential as the sexual communication in the bedroom. Right. And I think one other important point that you mentioned was kind of creating, uh, introducing some form of adventure in the relationship, because I find that at least again, that's what I'm hearing consistently that people are having the same sexual routine and for many of them, they'd say like, you know, part of it, we're just like checked out for part of this mm-hmm. kind of sexual behavior, because I know, I, I know what's coming up. I know what's next. And it, it's not kind of like, it's hard to stay present when I have this kind of like kind of sex with the same routine in past 40 years. Uh, right. <laughs> then you're there doing your, your to-do list. Right. right. It's like, I already know what's going to happen next. It's just, you know, very predictable. So it's, it, 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 it makes it a lot more difficult to stay in the moment and be open to exploring something new. I think that that's definitely important, adding something, some variety to the mix. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And again, if it, it doesn't mean that like, you have to kind of install this swing <laughs> in your bedroom, <laughs> it's just a matter of maybe, like, as you said, like uh, wearing some sexy lingerie or like trying a new position or so, it could be a, a small, small thing that you can kind of like uh, introduce with obviously with the permission from your partner that you can kind of explore. And some of them going to be a hit and some, many of them might be a miss. And it's not a big deal. Exactly. It's not a big deal. I think what I would recommend if there's going to be one suggestion is definitely including a little bit of more manual genital stimulation or or oral sex somewhere in the mix if if a person wants to focus on more penile vaginal intercourse. And if that's your thing, fine. If your partner is saying, hey, I want to have an orgasm too, of your female partner, then I would include some oral sex or manual genital stimulation to, to help her, to help her out. Wonderful. No, I I love that. I think like these, this episode is full of great (laughs) tips that kind of like we can apply all. So I think this was great. I know that uh, we're toward the end of our time, but I know you have lots of great content. You're like continuously publish articles and blogs. So if our listeners want to kind of learn more about these great tools that you're providing in the sex education and your practice, where where do you recommend them to go? I would recommend that they follow me on Instagram. That seems to be a really good place that I'm sharing content in. That's at Dr. Janet Brito. I also have my website, which is sextherapyhawaii.com. And I also have a Facebook page, which is also under Dr. Janet Brito. So I'm providing sex education resources, articles that are in the news, or tips on something you could do um, during, on a daily basis, something to continue to honor your sexual health. Guys, I follow her in all of these <laughs> platforms. And I feel I, even as someone that works in this field, I learned a ton. So I recommend you guys check her social media uh, and also her webpage. And if you didn't get a chance to write it down, you can find the information in our show notes. 
Thank you so much for being generous with your time. We love having you in this show. And I'm, I'm very grateful for all the wonderful work that you're doing for our field. Thank you so much. Thanks so, thanks so much for having me. Okay, have a great day. Okay, you too. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Janet Brito. I loved how she introduced multiple techniques that you guys can implement. Maybe even today we were telling her we were talking about it after I stopped recording that sometimes, you know, a psychological conversation can get too heady and people are thinking, okay, these concepts are great, but I don't know how to apply it. So I think our conversation today was full of great tips. And I hope at least you guys choose one one of the strategies that she mentioned and give it a shot. And also make sure you're checking out her website and Instagram account. And also let me know if there's a topic that you want to learn more about. You can email me at drmooli at sexologypodcast.com. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.